So tonight I will start our exploration of the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, is it that is the sound good? Is it too high, too low? It sounds really loud to me, but sounds fine. It's a little loud. Some people say, and some people say fine. Okay. The problem is sometimes when I get really jazzed about the teachings, I can start getting maybe a little more. But then sometimes I get quiet. You don't know which one you're going to get. <laughs> I'll try to not blow anybody away. Okay, so the Noble Eightfold Path. Let's get jazzed about the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is the Buddha's prescription for a deeply spiritual life. And one of the things that I think is so um, cool is that uh, it's been a number of centuries, about 2,600 years or how many centuries? 26 centuries that the Noble Eightfold Path has been around. That's pretty tried and true. Um, and we get the delight of, of the these teachings having been transmitted down through all those years and arriving here. How lucky and fortunate we are. I'm assuming that most of you are at least a little bit familiar with the Eightfold Path. Um, just a quick review, there are uh, eight steps, that's why it's called the Eightfold Path. And each one um, is preceded by the word Sama, which is often translated as right, but for many of us that just feels wrong. <laughs> and so, um, I prefer the word wise. Today we, I found another um, translation or flavor for that word sama. Um, apparently it can be translated as meaning on pitch. So you have... Okay, all right. <laughs> I'll try to speak up or I'll move this a little closer then. So sama can um, also be translated as on pitch, so like a, a musical note that's on pitch. So there's a sense of harmony, right, when something's on pitch. So there's that sense in each of these um, complete uh, and full factors of the path. So we have wise view, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise mindfulness, wise effort, and wise concentration. So we're going to start out tonight, we're going to jump right into um, wise view. And it seems like a good place to start. It's usually listed first in the Eightfold Path. As I described this morning, we can think of it more as an eightfold circle or an eightfold mandala or an eightfold spiral because each um, factor uh, feeds and is nourished by each other, fac other factor. But generally, um, it's good to get ourselves established with wise view, to know... Um, what we're practicing for, to get our basic thinking about the past straight. Wise view is um, generally divided into mundane and supermundane wise view. So you could say worldly wise view and wise view leading to liberation. Worldly wise view being the understanding of karma, and super-mundane wise view being the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. That's a lot to cover in one talk. But I felt like I really want to give you guys um, the classical teachings of the Eightfold Path, what, what each um, factor is classically taught as. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it, even though it's a lot. <laughs> See how that uh, plays out. So we're going to start with um, worldly or mundane wise view um, karma or kama. So the word karma or kama is translated as action or doing. 
Sometimes it's uh, specified further as intentional action, though all action is intentional, so I'm not really sure <laughs> why that uh, word is added in. The, the intention we're talking about is the mental factor, chetana, which is um, present in every moment of experience, that urge or that, that, that drive towards any action, action of thought, action of body, action of speech. What's important with kama is, um, you could say, the motivations that flavor the intention. So are the motivations wholesome or are the motivations unwholesome? So the same action could have a different, uh, you could say, karmic result depending on the motivation that... um, with which the action is done. So for example, you could slap somebody because they're unconscious and you're trying to wake them up, or you could slap somebody because you're angry at them. You can see that the feeling of the two actions, while it's the same action, the feeling is very different. And the motivation that is behind the um, intention and urge of the action is very different. So it's said that there would be different karmic results depending upon what the motivation is. And that, that's, that makes sense, right? You can feel that. The basic uh, law of karma is um, cause and effect or uh, what we sow, so shall we reap if we plant suffering, that we'll get suffering in some way and form. The exact, perhaps, sometimes you can see the karmic result pretty quickly and sometimes it it may um, not be so clear. But the basic law holds that you plant suffering, you get suffering, you plant happiness, you get happiness. So we act with wholesome intentions and the results will be beneficial. act with unwholesome atten- intentions and eventually there, there, there is this playing out in the form of suffering. Now the exact workings of kama are said to be impossible to... Um, you can't, there's so many causes and conditions that come together in the unfolding of a moment that you can't work out the exact, like, oh, this kama's due to that, or this happens, or this... It's said that even um, the Buddha couldn't do that. So, so we don't have to worry about the exact causes, but the understanding that the law of karma is um, the way life works, just like gravity is the way life works, is considered very important in our spiritual practice if we want to um, sow happiness instead of suffering. So wrong view would be the idea that you can do things that will cause suffering, you can plant suffering, and that you're going to get happiness out of that. Or perhaps wrong view are that our actions don't matter. This is a very popular view. (laughs) Like if you do something and you don't get caught, it doesn't matter. But in Buddhist understanding, everything that we do matters. Everything that we do is shaping um, our kama (laughs) and shaping, you could say, our future. I want to throw in the caveat and make sure you understand that not, um, the Buddha taught that not everything is due to kama. So, It's not fatalistic. It's not deterministic. That, as I said, a mix of causes and conditions come together to create a moment. Kama is one of those causes and conditions. Like, for example, the Buddha specifically said the weather is not... What kind of weather you have around you is not your kama. It's not... (laughs) There are other causes and conditions functioning there. He also said, assault, interestingly, that assaults are not your, 
your kama, that there's other conditions. I find that very interesting. I was thinking about that today. I was thinking that um, assaults uh, could include um, the oppression that we may suffer, perhaps due to our gender or due to our sexual orientation or due to our race or due to our gender expression. It's not your fault. (laughs) Again, this could be I'm seen as an assault that many causes and conditions come together for for oppression, for us to live under oppression. For example, cultural ignorance, (laughs) collective karma, collective greed, hatred, and ignorance. I think it's not so helpful to look at kama as like looking back and saying, oh, how did... Well, it can be helpful. I have to back up there. In many ways, I think the most helpful way to look at kama is to um, look forward, look at um, how we are uh, working with the present moment in order to um, create wholesomeness or happiness. So in some ways, you could say that karma is about taking responsibility for our thoughts, words, and deeds in the moment and realizing that we have the possibility, so it's a very hopeful understanding, that we have the possibility with mindfulness to create wholesome energy, wholesome karma. positive conditions in our lives. So looking forward. Retreat is a great time to explore the unfolding of kama because you have this quiet time here and you're able to see more directly the results of actions. I remember my first um, long retreat that I did in 1984. And I learned a lot about Kama in that retreat. (laughs) Uh, The summer before, um, I had not had much to do, and I was just waiting for the retreat to start. I was young, I was 24, so I was just hanging out in my dad's house waiting for the retreat to start. And um, I didn't have much to do, so I watched some soap operas, two of them. All my children in General Hospital. (laughs) Well, guess what was going through my mind for the first three weeks of that retreat? It was all about those soap operas. It was like, I wonder if she's still with him, and did they find out about that? And, oh, I hope that, mm -mm mm-mm-mm. Wow. It was like, wow, okay, that's Kama. Like, I put that in my mind, that kind of unwholesome energy, and there it sprouted, <laughs> you know, it, I planted that and I got what I planted. It was a great learning. I remember also on that retreat, I went through this period where I remembered all kinds of things that I'd done that were unwholesome. And most of them weren't really huge, but there was a string. I remember this lasted for quite a while. And um, it really gave me an understanding of, you could say, the burden, the comic burden of acting in unskillful ways. That you could even say the comma plays out right here in our own minds and hearts, just remembering these things. I remember one thing a friend had lent me a shirt. And I kept, quote-unquote, forgetting to return it because I liked it a lot. It's not a huge thing, but it was a burden. It, remembering it, it felt like a burden because it wasn't, it wasn't clean, right? So when we start to see the results of our actions clearly, um, th- this motivation arises to clean up our act. So after the retreat, I went to my friend and I told her what had happened. And she said, you keep the shirt. (laughs) Then it was clean, right? It's a little thing I know. Um, You're not going to hear big, dark secrets from me. 
but um, but but there's a lot of those in many of our lives, and um, it's good to clean them up, to have that motivation to clean up our karma. I would notice too, I tried not to take too much food that first retreat, but it was hard. I would get to in the lunch line and I'd pretty much lose mindfulness, be overtaken with kind of this fear there wouldn't be enough food for me. And um, I pretty much um, had a rule that I had to eat what I took because I didn't want to throw away food that didn't feel right to me. So I would take too much food, and then I wouldn't be too full, and I'd be like, "Okay, Rebecca, there you go. There's your. <laughs> that's the karmic result of taking too much food." Or sometimes there would be not enough that they would run out at the end, and I'd be like, "Oh," and um, it was just learning. So the idea isn't. I want to make it clear. The idea isn't to judge ourselves and to get down on ourselves, but to actually embrace seeing the unfolding of karma. And also to know that here we are developing um, really good karma. Like each moment of metta, that's really positive. You're sowing the seeds of mindfulness, you're sowing the seeds of metta each moment that we're cultivating that. And that enters the mind stream and becomes, grows. Each moment of mindfulness, even if you don't feel like you have that many, each moment counts. <laughs> each moment is um, planting wholesome seeds. So we can appreciate that. We can appreciate um, the moments of of non-distractedness, the moments of mindfulness, the moments of metta, the moments of compassion, the moments of wisdom. So we nurture those seeds, right? We nurture the seeds of whole, that produce wholesome kama and we, um, we take good care with the unwholesome Mindfulness of the unwholesomeness helping um, to arrest its development. It's like taking away the watering can. (laughs) Seeds need water to sprout, so with mindfulness we put away the water can when um, unwholesome tendencies arise. Well, I'm very aware that we could continue to talk about karma, but I want to get to the Four Noble Truths. So the other part of right view or the super mundane right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So basically understanding suffering, understanding the root causes of suffering, understanding freedom from suffering, and understanding the path leading to freedom from suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. So we've, got, we've kind of folded back in on ourselves. <laughs> it's great. That happens a lot in the, in the um, Noble Eightfold Path, that um, different parts kind of feed into and fold back in on other parts. But basically, the Four Noble Truths is exploring deeply the nature of suffering and the nature of freedom. The first noble truth of dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress, uneasiness, discontent, dissatisfaction, unreliability. There's, there's many ways we can look at this word. It's, it's a rich and deep word. I, I feel like I'm still understanding. After 35 years of practice, I'm still understanding dukkha more deeply.
in the um, discourse on the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said, birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and dejection are suffering, Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality, body, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness as possessions of myself is suffering. Well, we could really unpack that. I've actually done three talks on just that paragraph. <laughs> but basically, it's, it's a subtler and subtler and subtler understanding of why we suffer. So on the surface level, there's very obvious suffering of the pains of heart and mind. And then... Or you could say the very basic suffering of, of, of you can't always get what you want. And then the next level of suffering is even if you get what you want, it's going to change. It's getting a little more subtle there. The first one, everybody, even untrained worldlings could relate to. The second one, yeah, still maybe, but need a little reminding. <laughs> Basically, we just live in this crazy, wild world where you can't peg anything down. It changes so often and so quickly at a speed that's actually quite mind-blowing. Wow, it's stressful. Dukkha. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, cycling through. Having to deal with the unpleasant And then there's just this weariness of, of the bombardment of sense pro- impressions and the work to keep this being together. That's kind of where we're getting to the more even subtler level and the talking about um, taking the aggregates as, as me or mine or taking the um, experiences of body or mind as me or mine and hanging on to them, taking them personally. And there's a tension and a stress there, dukkha. Dukkha is to be understood. And so on retreat we get a chance to do that, to look more deeply into dukkha. Most of us don't have to look too far. can show up pretty quickly and easily. It's not the usual way. We live in a culture of denial, I think. We have it as an art form in this country. Some people said the true religions of America are optimism and denial. Maybe not some... Maybe that's changing. (laughs) But... Or somebody else said, America, a country where everything is done to prove life isn't tragic. I saw a television commercial a number of years ago. I think it was for aspirin or Tylenol. This woman says, how much tolerance do I have for pain? Zero tolerance. Just say no to pain. And um, I, I was so struck by that. <laughs> I was worried for her zero tolerance. That's <laughs> you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> Please do take your Tylenol, but <laughs> let's work on the tolerance part too. <laughs> and another way we kind of deny dukkha in this um, country, I think I don't know about other other countries, but it feels like it's kind of a cultural thing is we think that suffering is a personal deficiency. That if we're suffering, it's somehow um, wrong. And that we should have been able to prevent it. That's heavy. That weighs a lot. 
I think one thing I loved about Buddhism when I first heard about it was like, it was like, oh yeah, okay. This isn't my fault. This is the way life is. It's hard to be human. It's stressful. It's challenging. Lots of stuff comes down that we didn't go looking for. We don't want. I found it to be quite a relief. I, I, I love talking about dukkha. I could do all my talks this month on dukkha. But, so we want to understand dukkha. However, we want to engage with suffering on retreat, and always, but on retreat, since we're on retreat, in a way that liberates us. Thomas Merton said, if I am called to the solitary life, it does not necessarily mean I will suffer more acutely in solitude than anywhere else, but that I will suffer more effectively. So please suffer effectively. Ajahn Chah said there are two kinds of suffering. The first is the suffering that causes more suffering that we repeat over and over. The second is the suffering that comes when we stop running. The second kind is the suffering that can lead to freedom. So we have the courage. We come here and we have the courage to uh, meet dukkha and to begin to understand it. To break through the denial, the denial that's so strong. Because the first step in transformation is to meet dukkha. The second noble truth, what causes suffering, the conventional wisdom is that suffering comes because we have too many unpleasant moments and not enough pleasant ones. But in Buddhism, or the Buddha's teachings, the cause of suffering is craving. You could say basically setting ourselves up in opposition to the way things are. It includes aversion. The word tanha that is used here um, literally translates as thirst. So you can feel the kind of craving that we're talking about, thirst, right? It has a strength to it. Almost a desperation, no, that word, thirst. It's the kind of desire that wants something. It's the kind of desire that contracts. I've heard it called shackles in the heart. Imprisoned, our hearts imprisoned in, in wanting. So what it comes down to is that the cause of stress is craving or clinging. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. They're on a continuum. Holding on. And so this is what we must get to know also. Directly, intimately within ourselves. Again, we don't have to usually look long. Five minutes of meditation will usually be sufficient <laughs> to, to start to um, see and uh, feel the flavor of, of craving. The mind, the crazy mind, being with the crazy mind where the basic theme is wanting pleasantness, not wanting unpleasantness. Strategizing how to get only pleasantness and not unpleasantness. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It's um, 
you can see how this is a cause of suffering. There's, there's, there's this contraction of mind and heart that happens with this wanting and not wanting. And there's a sense of narrowness or that we can feel ourselves. And this sense of restlessness. Because when we are wanting to control life, this is what we're really hoping for, that we can control life. When we want to control life, we're going to have to work hard because it changes all the time. We're not going to get a lot of rest. It's not going to be a lot of breaks. (laughs) There's a basic restlessness like, There must be some answer I haven't discovered yet. Cravings like, there must be something that's going to do it for me. I just got to find it. Keeps looking and looking and looking. Restless. So we explore this energy of craving and we get to understand it so deeply, or you could say make friends with it so deeply, that um, its power begins to dissolve. Mindfulness is a basic tool. When we notice craving, clinging, that contraction, aversion, I feel it very viscerally myself, in the heart, in the body, in in the sense of the mind going like this. So we feel it. How does it manifest? What stories does it tell us? How does it seduce us? How does mindfulness change the experience? We learn to... to sit within it rather than be controlled by it. There's a great power of being able to be with craving. If we can't be with it, we're going to be driven by it. But if we can be with it, then there are options and we can develop wisdom into its nature and see that It's just a mind state. That's all. When we don't have mindfulness, it's our whole world. With mindfulness, oh, it's a mind state. And so again, that goes for aversion. It's the same Same struggle, just a different version. Aversion is a different version of craving. Try to get rid of something. We're still holding it on to it. We're still taking it very seriously. fascinated about how I respond to life when it doesn't go the way I want it to, when craving arises for things to be differently. Like, let's say our computer stops working, right? That happens sometimes. The first moments are interesting because what I find happens in the first moments is the mind says, this is not happening. might say that a few times. Denial, right? And hope. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, it is happening. Then there's a reactivity, right? But then there's a chance to be mindful, to not take it further, to develop um, 
gracefulness in this world of change, an ability to go with the flow, so to speak. We're used to trying to micromanage and control this endless change. We're always on the top of our game. But this creates a sense of separate self, which is the um, underlying ignorance, underlying craving and aversion. And even deeper, you could say subtler level of suffering. It's the hardening and the armoring of the heart and the mind. This sense of um, the hardening and the armoring of the heart and the mind creating this sense of a protected self. There's so much stress there. Because then we take it all very personally and then we're we're back to the um, identifying and the clinging to the aggregates. So this is a level of, you could say, craving that's more subtle, the clinging to these experiences of heart, body, and mind, as me, as mine, as personal. And yes, in some ways they are. On one level, if um, anger arises, it yeah, I have to deal with it. It's kind of personal. So we're not denying that, pretending that's not true. But there's another level that is just the kind of, you could say, um, life energy manifesting in this moment due to causes and conditions in this being. It's not so personal. And life, it just keeps doing that. It keeps bubbling up in all these different presentations. So they're both true. And yet that understanding that it's just life manifesting and bubbling up, if we have that understanding deeply, then the taking care of it on this relative level of reality is lighter and more spacious, less suffering. Speaking of less suffering, let's move on to the third noble truth. freedom from suffering. The Buddha said that the goal of our practice is the unshakable liberation of the heart and mind, the sure heart's release. Now, if we wanted to get... um, Hmm. You could say different traditions talk in different ways about what we mean when we talk about nibbana, for example, or enlightenment, unshakable liberation. It can be talked about a lot of different ways, but one way that is agreed upon by all (laughs) is that it is the release of clinging. You could say the abandonment of of the contraction of clinging. And what perhaps messes with our minds is that this third noble truth of the release of craving, of clinging, is not about getting anything. We still hope that we're going to get something. It's more about letting go rather than attaining anything. Again, see, we can, we can use our usual mentality for how we're going to find happiness and bring it right into our practice. And so we're going to find happiness when we get enlightened. It's just another version of craving. 
Barry Madgett said, Enlightenment is precisely the thorough abandonment of any notion of enlightenment. It is putting an end to the pursuit of happiness. It's not about gaining anything, but rather about letting go of holding on. There's a story I found in um, the Buddhist magazine, Lion's Roar. And it's about a nun, but I, I, her name is not here. So I'm just going to read. It says, She says, When I first ordained as a nun, she said, I was always hoping to get enlightened. But now, after 40 years of practice, nothing has happened. Then she burst out laughing, overflowing with joy. Nothing happens. Sounds good. <laughs> Burst out laughing with joy. Nothing happens. There's an unfettered, unconstricted heart. Perhaps that's a definition of nibbana, the unfettered, unconstricted heart and mind. The Buddha said that um, the third noble truth is to be realized. And I was thinking about this word, to realize something. When we realize something, the truth was always there, but now we see it. We don't get anything, it was always there. It kind of dawns on us. Perhaps awakening dawns on us. This morning I mentioned a um, Tibetan monk named Anam Thubtin. And I'm going to read from his book, uh, Embracing Each Moment. I'm always talking about the idea of melting. I talk about it perhaps more than anything else these days. I used to talk about enlightenment quite a lot. Then as time went by, I changed my vocabulary These days I hardly ever talk about enlightenment. Luckily nobody has complained. Nobody has approached me and said that I don't talk enough about enlightenment. Melting is the experience of not having any sense of being contracted or shut down in any way. Basically melting is um, the dissolving of, of craving is what he is saying. Instead, it is a feeling that you can trust this world, you can trust this universe, and you can trust this human life. It is totally irrational. Just like love, love is irrational. Just like compassion, it is totally irrational. Can you understand the feeling of trusting life? So there's no longer a you who is somehow defending your own existence, your own physical territory, your own mental territory, your own egoistic territory, and who is trying to fight or flee from the outer world. This sense of trust comes naturally when you are no longer bound by your own fear. This trust that I'm speaking of is also a form of love. It is not so much that you love somebody or something, but that you become love. So this melting of the hardness, the craving, the aversion, the ignorance. And he's saying what's left is love, love and space, spaciousness. but it's a letting go. And what's cool is that we have every moment to practice this, every moment to explore what it means to let go of clinging, let go of craving. So we explore dukkha, we explore craving so that we get to know it. It's the actual getting to know it that helps then we explore the release of craving, the release of clinging, 
What does that feel like? How is that experience? And the only place we really can learn this is right now, right here. Not in the future, not some other place, but right here. And so we get connected, connected to this heart, body, and mind, right? So that we can work out our freedom right here. And sometimes it's pretty wild, lots of struggle. Sometimes it takes a while, something really grabs us, we're there, lost for a while. One person said, everything I've let go of has claw marks all over it. (laughs) Sometimes it feels that way. Okay, that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. That's just part of the journey. Look at those claw marks. Hmm. So sometimes it's uh, it's um, larger things, and sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes we we explore again each level of, uh, I've been talking about has some um, kind of subtler and subtler levels, subtler and subtler levels of dukkha, subtler and subtler levels of understanding craving and that craving and then subtler levels of letting go so sometimes it's just um, we might just feel a twinge of contraction in the mind or heart and we might turn mindfulness towards it and the mindfulness might be strong and it might disappear gone So there's all the way from claw marks to that. (laughs) And we explore all the territory in between. And then we see when there's this letting go of clinging, holding on, contraction, we see that uh, peace is possible for us. Peace is possible. We explore the flavor of peace, of rest. In some ways, that's what we're looking for, is rest. I remember a retreat I taught in Burma a number of years ago, and it was question-answer period, and I just never forgot this woman's question. She raised her hand, and she just looks very poignantly, she says, where can we rest? We're learning that. Deep rest. So exploring the nature of letting go, letting go of clinging, gross levels, subtle levels, seeing what's left over when clinging is absent, when aversion is absent, when contraction is absent, what's left over. Ryokan, the delightful um, Japanese monk, I think from the 17th century, not positive on the century there, a little poem, he says, If someone asks about the mind of this monk, say it is no more than a passage of wind in the vast sky. Lots of spaciousness there. 
lots of space, and yet he was also very connected and down to earth. Big heart, you can tell by some of the other poems. So it's not a spaciousness that's disconnected, but a spaciousness with heart. And the fourth noble truth, the path, which is um, what we'll be talking about this month. And we just talked about the first, again, circling back. So the path with its uh, part on um, developing wisdom, so right, a skillful view, wise view, wise intention, the learning um, to take care with our actions, so skillful action, skillful speech, skillful livelihood. And then the part about developing the mind through wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And I would like to end going back to the third noble truth, an enlightenment poem from Tejutsu, 1700s, a Japanese abbess from Japan. Well, Japanese abbess from Japan, from Hakujin. Standing on the small porch of Hakujin, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath followed by the shadow of a hungry crow, and she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away, and that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing arose, abided, and fell away. And then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, Nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and heart and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.